Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This is a special episode of the podcast. This week's revelations in what has come to be known as the Facebook Papers, reports based on a trove of documents brought forward by whistleblower Francis Haugen, are keeping Facebook and its senior executives at the top of news feeds around the world. In the avalanche of coverage, one particular piece stood out to me, one written by Adrian LaFrance, executive editor of The Atlantic, and a writer and observer that I regard as having a keen insight into issues at the intersection of tech and democracy. I had the opportunity to speak with her about the piece and some of the questions in my mind about the company and its response to these leaks. My name is Adrian LaFrance. I am the Atlantic's executive editor. So it's Tuesday, um, but it already feels like a long week for <laughs> those of us who are interested in in technology and uh, media. Um, but I imagine for the journalists like you who are doing the work, it's been uh, a much longer stretch. Yeah, it's been a pretty wild several weeks. We first got access to the Facebook papers in early October. It was truly sort of an all-out sprint to read, first of all, and understand and then do additional reporting. And, you know, I wrote a piece that we published yesterday. So it was, you know, it's really the the amount of material is truly insane, like unlike anything I've ever seen. So it's been really quite something. And I understand that additional tranches of documents will become available to those of you in the quote unquote consortium uh, going forward for a few weeks. That's right. It's a a sort of rolling basis where every day we're getting more documents. And the reason for that is that they're redacting the documents that we're receiving, uh, mostly, if not entirely, just for the names of sort of junior Facebook employees. And so as soon as they're redacting things, they're getting it to us, basically, is what we've been told. So I want to talk a little bit about this piece that, that you wrote. It is one that stood out to me in the uh, trove of, of, of articles that were being published all yesterday uh, with the headline, History Will Not Judge Us Kindly. Thousands of pages of internal documents offer the clearest picture yet of how Facebook endangers American democracy and show that the company's own employees know it. Um, so you had some time with these documents, um, and I, I feel like you zoomed in and then zoomed back out on some level. Can you tell me about the approach you took here? Yeah, I mean, so I have been reporting on and thinking about Facebook and the social web and media generally forever, it feels like for, you know, a decade at least. Um, And so I came to this with a good bit of prior, you know, thinking and reporting. And so I guess, I mean, the thing that as I read through, I probably have read, I don't know, 2000 pages of documents, maybe more. And that's only a tiny fraction of what's there. So just, you know, sort of a caveat that I've, I've only read a portion of, of these papers. But the thing that immediately struck me was, well, one of the things that immediately struck me was the power of seeing in Facebook employees' own words, their real, genuine, urgent concern about the company's moral bankruptcy. And it, you know, like 
any tech reporter could describe the worries that people have about Facebook and what it's doing to the world. But to see it in the words of the people who work there and know it best and know its inner workings was just, I mean, it's really meaningful. And so I knew that that framing felt important. And a lot of what I wrote about was concerning January 6th and how Facebook harms democracy and those sorts of themes. And so from there, I kind of, you know, obviously that's a very big framing. So I I sort of wanted to zoom right into the internal chats, but also kind of step back and and look at what happened on January 6th and really try to understand what Facebook's role was in sort of the simplest terms, but also in the sort of larger forces shaping the world terms, if that makes sense. And you do open with this anecdote about January 6th, um, which, you know, I think I regard as a clarifying event. It should be a clarifying event, I would argue, for uh, Americans. Walk us through that, why you you made that choice in this piece to kind of put us in the White House on January 6th. The reaction among Facebook employees to January 6th, and this, this very clear sense that comes through in the paper is that they felt that Facebook is culpable. That just seemed like an extraordinary and important place to start, but it wasn't just their reaction alone. It was sort of, to me, it's the importance of sort of what Facebook's role is in the instruction. And quite clearly, we know that former President Trump used Facebook to incite this violence. Um, He used Twitter as well, of course, and any platform available to him. Um, But I, I just think it's really important to have that context that Facebook was a key sort of catalyst in the fomenting sort of the the violence that ultimately came to pass that day. In asserting that, you are running directly into the statements by Mark Zuckerberg and more recently by Nick Clegg, Monica Bickert. These have also been repeated by uh, Facebook PR executives like Andy Stone, Danny Levers, that it is ludicrous, absurd to argue um, that Facebook was the cause of what happened on January 6th. Now, setting aside the fact that that's a scarecrow, no one's saying that Facebook is the primary cause of what happened on January 6th. Why do you think the idea that they played a role is something that they're pushing back so hard against at this point? Well, I mean, I think they're pushing back against it because it's horrifying. And of course, they wouldn't want to be associated with the events of that day. Um, and they're trying to spin the story so that they look better. But it's, it's you know, any reasonable observer can see quite clearly what happened. I think the other point they make is that the, you know, the president and those who committed crimes that day should be held responsible for their own actions. Of course, that's true, too. But it doesn't mean that Facebook shouldn't also deserve scrutiny for its role. So you take us through a little bit of the employee reactions to January 6th and and the role that it did, in fact, play. Can you give the listener just a sense of what's in the documents and and what it is you saw that helped you to arrive at these conclusions? Yes. In fact, I will read a couple of quotes, if that's okay, just because they really are so striking. And I I think it's two things. It's the things that people were saying in the moment, reacting to what was happening. And then the other thing that I caught a glimpse of that I'll get into in a moment was just how much work has been done within Facebook to prevent this exact thing and how leadership hasn't supported that work, these employees say. So, but first I'll I'll give you sort of a flavor for what we're talking about here. So so on January 6th, uh, you know, a few hours after everything went down at the Capitol, 
Mark Zuckerberg sends a note to employees sort of saying, you know, quote, this is a dark moment in our nation's history. And I know many of you are frightened and concerned. He then talks about feeling personally saddened and sort of treating this whole thing as an emergency situation. And his chief technology officer chimes in, and this is all in internal chats, and says, you know, expresses dismay as well and asks people to hang in there. And there's this very sort of furious response from employees who clearly, I should mention, seem to have great respect for the CTO. But their response, you know, someone writes, we've been hanging in there for years. We must demand more action from our leaders. At this point, faith alone is not sufficient. Someone else says, we've been feeling this fire for a long time, and we shouldn't be surprised it's now out of control. Someone else says, I'm tired of platitudes. I want action items. We're not a neutral entity. And then finally, I mean, and this is just a sampling, there's much more, but I'll read one more, which is one of the darkest days in the history of democracy and self-governance, history will not judge us kindly. So it's just it's these very bold, stark, just clear statements saying this is our fault. And it's, you know, w- well past time that we reckon with Facebook's role in this insurrection and, and this larger sort of democracy damaging role that it plays in society. I do, I do just want to pause then on these rejections uh, from senior leadership of this type of characterization. So you've got yesterday in his uh, earnings call, Mark Zuckerberg said, and, and I'll quote him, quote, what we're seeing is a coordinated effort to selectively use leaked documents to paint a false picture of our company, unquote. And you've got Nick Clegg, you know, who's, who's suggested apparently in a, uh, a memo to staff that the entire Facebook uh, papers sort of effort is just a ploy by traditional media dinosaurs that are hankering for an information ecosystem where you are the uh, only gatekeepers, uh, really, of information. But you're quoting these things. These are statements that aren't being manufactured by you or attributed to unsubstantiated sources or anonymous sources, but there's Facebook employees themselves. Um, so I don't know. How do you square that? How do you square the, the way the company is pushing back on, on what its own employees are saying? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the big part of the story is that the company is wildly dismissive of its employees and, and in particular, the ones who are raising alarm. But I think to the larger point, I mean, you know, we've known for weeks that Facebook has been sort of trying to shop around a narrative about the journalists working on these stories to say that it's some sort of like nefarious coordinated effort. It's almost like conspiracy theory-esque, right? So there's that. And then I think, I mean, on the on the question of, you know, the, or the criticism that journalists are critical of Facebook because Facebook has threatened their industry. I, I think that Facebook it's a you know it's true of course that there is a conflict there's a, a natural sort of tension there facebook has been a very negative force for journalists just economically but that has nothing to do with the fact of what it is and what it's doing and so it could, both things can be true that facebook is bad for traditional media companies because they scooped up all the ad dollars and also it's an irresponsible company like both things can be true You've focused quite a lot on January 6th, but you also kind of make this assertion, you know, that generally Facebook has been crucial in the role of advancing the cause of authoritarianism in America and around the world. And while this piece focuses mostly on the U.S. context and you use January 6th as the frame, can you tell me what else you saw in the papers around that broader issue of authoritarianism and the role that Facebook may play? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, it's really interesting, right? Because on one hand, and this goes back to the question about legacy gatekeepers, the social web has democratized publishing so that any individual anywhere can have their own massive audience and and sort of broadcast their thoughts to anyone, which in theory is a great thing. Like if our, for me personally, anyway, if our premise is that freedom of the press and freedom of speech is a right that should be exercised and available to all, like the social web should be good. Uh, However, what's tricky is the concentration of power in a single company and the lack of transparency around how that company operates then sort of leads us away from democratic values. Because I'll give you an example from the papers. You know, there was this whitelist program called Crosscheck. I should say there is this whitelist program called Crosscheck, which basically gave millions of Facebook users all over the world sort of uh, carte blanche to not be subject to Facebook's content moderation policies. And so what that means in practice is you could have uh, a politician who is, uh, you know, some sort of like authoritarian impulses or otherwise spreading misinformation, you know, using their platform, breaking Facebook's rules and Facebook wasn't enforcing them. And in fact, the research, Facebook's research showed that that people are most likely, like in this program, the people who were sort of getting a free pass were in turn most likely to be the ones to be spreading misinformation in, in the political sense, were most likely to be ones spreading misinformation. So what that amounts to is a situation where the powerful and harmful figures using the platform don't have the rules applied to them. Um, and you can very much see how that would be like, you know, a figure like Donald Trump, who has authoritarian impulses, stokes violence, harms democracy. So there's a very, you can draw a very direct line. And that's just one of many, many examples. Um, the other thing that came up a lot just has to do with the way that Facebook groups work and just both groups and sort of reshares being just the infrastructure of how both of those things work on Facebook, just constantly sort of driving the quality of content down and in more harmful, radicalized directions. And so again and again in these papers, you see Facebook workers really warning, like, we are incentivizing harm rather than mitigating it. Um, And that just comes up repeatedly. So I really would encourage folks to read the entire article and to look at the way that um, you have you know, brought in context from, for instance, the Department of Justice filings related to the insurrectionists, the ways in which they describe their use of Facebook, um, not only in facilitating their actual actions on the day, but also in promoting the notion of January 6th and and, uh, making a name for themselves and their own communities. But, you know, one of the other things that you focus on here so much is Mark Zuckerberg and his kind of, you know, looming presence in all of this um, I was particularly struck by a couple of the different statements that you pulled out uh, from employees who expressed their misgivings about him. Can you kind of take folks through the way that employees seem to feel about his role? Yes. I mean, what I heard again and again in my reporting, so I talked to several Facebook, former Facebook employees over the course of my reporting. And so between those conversations and reading the documents, there is this just this very dominant sense that it's a sort of metrics above all type culture. So, uh, you know, something that people told me again and again is the way that you 
get promoted, the way you get a bonus, the way that you succeed at Facebook is to show how what you're doing helps the company grow, which sounds actually sort of standard in business, right? Like that's, it's not unusual for businesses to expect um, impact from their employees. It's of course not unusual for businesses to prioritize growth, but the thing that's different about Facebook, I mean, two things. One is that people told me that it's obsession with growth is unusual, even by Silicon Valley standards. Um, and also that the sort of growth metrics it's laid out for itself are in direct tension with harm mitigation. And so, you know, there be these scenarios, and this comes up again and again in the papers, where a team comes up with a recommendation, say, to you know, demote content a certain way or otherwise just to tweak the algorithm so that there is less misinformation on the platform, less content that is known to directly be linked with real life uh, or offline violence. And you see all of these cases where people sort of worry about, well, we'll never get that through because if it impacts the core growth metrics, it'll get shot down. And it's clear that Certainly, culturally, the belief is that that comes directly from Mark Zuckerberg. Um, his team very, you know, insistently rejects this characterization, but it just comes up again and again and again. You have a couple of quotes in here, in particular, where employees are expressing their misgivings. Um, one in particular, who you know, basically says that they're still hoping for change. But they, they they're just not not sure it will come. I mean, there is this sense of of almost. Um, I don't know what it is. Is it employees giving up or is it them resigned to the fact that ultimately nothing will change? Will anything change at Facebook if Mark Zuckerberg is the CEO? It doesn't seem like it. It certainly hasn't yet. And it, you know, we, this is a remarkable moment in Facebook's story, but it also in some other ways has been a sort of sustained period of crisis for the company since arguably since 2016. And, and I think you do see and people talk about this who who either are there or have worked there, that you do see a sort of talent drain where more and more people are saying, enough's enough, I can't live with working here. Um, at the same time, and this was something that w- was really sort of revelatory from the papers for me, is you see how many really smart invested people are working there and earnestly trying hard to make it better and feel like they're sort of bumping up against a wall and they can't do it. And so the question becomes like, for how much longer will Facebook be able to retain talent that includes the sorts of people who can, you know, improve the platform? The second part of that question, of course, is, is there willingness among leadership to actually improve it? Is it possible to improve at the scale um, that it enjoys now? And so there's all these sort of like existential questions wrapped into it. But uh, I think a lot of people would argue that with Zuckerberg in charge, that it'll never change. And I just want to get this quote in here, quote, I am worried that Mark's continuing pattern of answering a different question than the question that was asked is a sim- symptom of a lar- some larger problem, wrote one Facebook employee in an internal post in June 2020, referring to Zuckerberg. I sincerely hope that I am wrong and I'm still hopeful for progress, but I also fully understand my colleagues who have given up on this company and I can't blame them for leaving. Facebook is not neutral and working here isn't either. I mean, does this kind of raise the question of of whether at this point, at this moment in time, with this CEO, with this particular governance structure, is it possible to work at Facebook with a clear conscience? Oof, man. Uh, 
I don't know. I certainly would not work there, but I, it's also maybe not fair. Like, I don't know. Not only do I not know everything, I know very little about Facebook, even as someone who's been reporting about it for a decade. I think I could see how some people could believe this is sort of like the the Trump administration argument you would hear. Like some people believe that it's better to be inside the Death Star (laughs) trying to (laughs) fix it. Um, (laughs) Some weird Star Wars metaphor. But anyway, I, I can I can understand the impulse to say this thing is so powerful. I have a good moral compass. I could make it better. Like I do get that line of thinking, but it's a tricky one. And I, I am sure quite clearly that it is different from person to person. I mean, it's not just people on the inside who have to make that determination. I mean, it also has myriad legions of of partners and external entities that, that partner with it to ask these questions, all sorts of trust and safety groups and consortia and researchers and that, that sort of thing that, that engage with it. But, you know, if, if all of that effort ultimately rolls up to an individual who will dismiss it for growth, what's it for? Well, right. And I mean, again, Facebook would say that that isn't actually how it operates, but to outside observers and to employees on the inside, it very much seems to be that way. And so, I mean, it's also, it sort of begs the fundamental question of what is Facebook actually for? And there's so much sort of like euphemistic baloney around that anyway. Like if you just listen to how Mark Zuckerberg talks about the platform over time, it's in these very squishy, like we're for community, we're for, it's sort of the classic tech for a better world type optimism. And it's so, so clear to the outside observer that it's, it's just not what they purport it to be. And and to be fair, like social media is miraculous and does do good for people. But right now the harm certainly seems to be outweighing the good. It certainly is a, a great at making its shareholders quite a, a return. Um, of course, yesterday, um, the earnings were, were quite strong. You do have, though, a handful of suggestions that for things that Facebook could do, and you give those at the end of the article. Can you kind of walk us through those a little bit? Sure. I mean, some of these come directly from former Facebook employees who sort of have fought these thoughts for a long time. Um you know, again and again, I heard that like groups are just the cesspool of Facebook and it's part of how people are polarized. It's how people get sequestered in sort of like misinformation environments. And then that stuff doesn't get reported because the people who are in those groups don't report it because they believe it. Like, so I think really like understanding how groups work and what harm they can cause and addressing that infrastructure is a big one. You know, a lot of Facebook folks have told me that the reshare should be just outright banned, or certainly that there should be sort of throttles um, or circuit breakers for virality so that when any piece of content is suddenly just blowing up, that there's a sort of natural sort of, again, circuit breaker in place to slow it down and, you know, maybe have a, a human or someone look at what that is to make sure it's all right. In some cases, it might be totally innocuous, but in others, Perhaps not. It's something like stop the steal. Um, so those are some ideas. And then for me personally, I mean, this is something I've been arguing for for years and years, but I think just like more and arguably radical transparency on how the platform actually works. Like I think that if we were, we as the public were able to see what's the thing going most viral at any, any given moment, what's the group with the most sort of engagement or activity, just just far more 
transparency in real time around what is spreading around the network, we would have a window into how Facebook works and what it, what it prioritizes that Facebook employees who have criticized Facebook would argue shows how sort of broken it's, it, it is. But I, yeah, I, I mean, I think begins with transparency about how this even works. I'm also curious whether you think there is something maybe more fundamentally broken about Facebook from a, a management perspective. And one of the things that I'm struck by in all of this is that when you look at the harms, the way they're spread out around the world and the way that even here at home, you know, some we know that some of those harms accrue to minorities, you know, women, other groups, in, even in our country. It, is there something in uh, the way Facebook's managed that just can't grok those harms? Maybe because it's it's a largely white leadership. I mean, I think any company is stronger with diverse a diverse workforce and certainly with diverse leadership. So I'm without I actually don't know as much about its leadership group and their, you know, who's involved, but I, I think that's a totally fair question to ask. I think too, and my colleague Ellen Cushing wrote about this, but this sort of uh, focus on the United States and Europe to a large extent leaves many other countries badly under-resourced in terms of protecting those users. And then finally, I think, you know, this has become long since become a cliche, but there's the thing that people sometimes say about Facebook, which is like, uh, you know, if you don't know what the product is, you're the product and they're selling your data. And or I should specify, they don't sell people's data, but they make people's data profiles available to advertisers who want to target users. And I think that that is key to remember because at the end of the day, the clients who Facebook is serving is their advertisers, arguably more than the people who use the site. And so that just, in terms of looking where their priorities lie, I think that's a key thing to remember. What did I not ask you about that you would like to get across to the listener? I do find their antagonism toward the press really interesting and not surprising, but I do think it's notable. It's been really interesting to watch them try to, ever since the journal's great initial coverage, you know, it they've just been on, it's like beyond crisis mode there. And um, Cecilia Kang and Chira Frankel's book, The Ugly Truth, An Ugly Truth, in that, in their book, they write about this moment, and I think it was 2018, but you should fact check me, where Mark Zuckerberg sort of deliberately said he was going to, into being a wartime president. Like he no longer wanted to be a peacetime CEO, but it was war. And I think we very much see that in how Facebook has positioned itself against the public interest, very sort of visibly in how they treat journalists who are asking fair questions about, you know, on behalf of the public. But it's just, it's very, I think it's very striking to watch them go on the attack. I mean, it does strike me, and I've actually talked about this with Shira and Cecilia, the idea that, you know, he seems hardened in a way. It's kind of like a, you know, forget the haters kind of perspective that I've created something that's amazing and great for the world, and the haters don't get it, and we're doing our best, and it's world-changing, and it's, it's, it's expensive what we do, and, you know, no one could do it better. And, and really people ought to just recognize his achievement. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember who reported this, but someone reported recently, it may have been in the times as well, some sort of like deliberate PR tactic where they were trying to sort of shield Zuckerberg from criticism and cast him more as the like 
remember he's the original inventor of Facebook and isn't he a genius and whatever. And to be fair, I mean, Facebook is, it's, this is new and incredibly complex technology and the problems they face are truly very, very difficult to solve. At the same time, I'm with you that there seems to be an unwillingness to engage in good faith with any criticism. And, you know, it's not, there's certainly no way to solve problems this complicated if you're not going to engage with your critics. I mean, that is another thing he said yesterday in the earnings call, um, which quite literally went along the lines of, you know, we we deserve criticism, et cetera, um, and good faith criticism is good for us and, and, and helps us to stand up to scrutiny. But then he went on to sort of essentially dismiss all of this as, as not that. Right. And he's referred to groupthink among journalists, which I is just sort of laughable. And so, yeah, I, you know, I think they're in just kind of like meltdown war mode, crisis mode. And the, I mean, the fascinating thing is that this is only the very, very beginning. There's still so many more documents that most journalists in the world have yet to see. And I think perhaps a sort of fundamentally, a sort of fundamental shift in the culture where it's sort of like Facebook has now entered its whistleblower era and there's no going back. What is next? What can we expect from the Atlantic? And what do you suspect will happen to this this loose consortium, which just based on the press reports does seem to be temporary and and maybe not always a completely collegial place. I have to say, I think, you know, the people who've been working on this story are amazing. Everybody's doing their best. We're all in our own independent newsrooms. It was sort of funny to be thrown onto a Zoom together. Um, But the only thing the consortium worked on jointly was establishing for ourselves the embargo date. Now that that's passed, the consortium is effectively doesn't exist anymore. So I can just sort of describe what's happening there. Francis Haugen's team is in the process of distributing access to the documents more widely. And the consortium that had them on an embargoed basis is basically dissolving. So again, consortium almost makes it sound more organized than it was. But um, I have great respect for my fellow journalists who are on this story. And then in terms of what happens next at The Atlantic, we're just continuing to read and process and report. And Facebook is a preoccupation anyway, because it's one of the most powerful companies on the planet, but also because it sits squarely at this space where, you know, there are questions about misinformation and conspiracism and democracy, and it's just fully in our wheelhouse and hugely consequential for the world. So you can expect many more (laughs) stories from us. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great chatting with you. That's it for this special episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guest. And of course, thank you for listening. Policy Press.